Hello, everybody. This is Dr. Diana Wiley. I'm your host of Love, Lust, and Laughter. My guest, she's returning, and I'm so glad, Dr. Stella Resnick. Dr. Stella Resnick has been my friend and mentor for over 30 years. Hello, Dr. Stella. Hi there, Dr. Wiley. <laughs> let's, let's do, uh, di- maybe Dr. Diana's a less, less formal. With us, Dr. let's just Diana. call each other. Let's just call each other Stella and Diana because we have known each other a long time. Uh, in getting ready for this show, I thought I'd make it very personal because uh, I had saved notes that I took. Uh, I, the first time I heard you lecture was at QuadS, that's Scientific Society for Study of did I, Study of Sexuality. Did I get it right that time? <laughs> it's the um, QuadS. Yeah. Um um society uh for the study of sexuality i believe something yes like that. yeah yeah anyway so that uh, was the study of sec- uh, um um sexual science sexual science yes right study of sexual science and so um my notes are in your file uh may 2nd 1992 uh, I'm just going to say what the overview of what we plan to talk about. So that we'll take from that actualizing sexual potential. And then we're going to go to October 20th, 2006, attachment, attunement, and sexuality. Uh, and then 2010, another quad S meeting, the um, multidisciplinary look at empathy and sex drive. You know, when I wrote my book uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, Love in the Time of Corona, what I put in the introduction was, uh, actually the acknowledgements was, I met Dr. Stella Resnick at least 30 years ago when she began focusing on the concept of pleasure. That was a direction I liked. She is a great friend and mentor. And you've written three books. uh, And the classic one is... The, uh, the Pleasure Zone, and I interviewed about, about that book in 1999 when you were in Hawaii for Quad S. Do you remember that? Um, well, it's all right. I had a radio show in Hawaii, and we talked about The Pleasure Zone then in uh-huh, 1999. And then um, The Heart of Desire, Keys to the Pleasure of Love. Keys and to the Pleasures. The Pleasures. pleasures. Very important. Uh-huh. Pleasure, right. plural of love. How do you keep love and lust alive in a long-term relationship? Oh boy, is that ever a common question? And mm-hmm. um, and and you talk about again about prioritizing pleasure and playfulness. And then your most recent book is Intimacy, Body to Body. No, it's called Body to Body Intimacy. Thank, thank you. I didn't have it in front of me. Yeah. <laughs> I got body to Body Intimacy, Transformation Through Love, Sex, and Neurobiology. Yeah, and one of the things that you've done that's just so wonderful, Stella, is you've integrated all of these areas of study and science and neuroscience. And so... I, uh, I, I, no wonder you've been, uh, no wonder you have been a mentor to me. I mean, 
it's just great. Now, when I first um, got together with Brian, my now husband, but we, we met in 2010, late 2010. So on January 11th, 2011, I just noticed that's 1, 11, 11. <laughs> um, he sent me an email, my husband, quotes from the pleasure zone. Because one of the first things I had him do in our relationship was to read the pleasure zone. And he, he writes, dear Diana, so this is in 2011. I read this again today and wanted to share it with you. So these are both quotes from Dr. Stella's The Pleasure Zone. If you are willing to explore your erotic nature and can entice your partner to explore with you, then a long time intimacy can offer some of the most sexually adventurous opportunities of all, end quote. And another quote, and then I'm gonna check in here again with Stella. Highly arousing sex with one's committed partner forges a deep emotional bond of love, not just because the two of them share something together that's wonderful, but also because they're usually so very grateful to one another for making it happen. And he ends by saying he's so grateful to me for in many ways. And boy, you know that those were really great quotes and we've made it come true over the almost 12 years we've been together. So that's, um, you've been a huge influence. I bet you hear that a lot, Stella, that you've really made a difference in people's lives. I, I do, I do, frankly, um, I yeah. do hear it. Uh, and it uh, gives me great pleasure and um, it's very reassuring in many ways. Well, you know, we, we really want to, as we age, and we've been also, you and I have been aging for quite some time, but successfully aging, I think. But as we age, we often think about generativity and what we want to leave behind and our legacy. And with your three books, my goodness, and all of the talks you give. So you, your, your legacy is very strong. And I'm so honored to have you as a friend so let's uh and so so let's start talking about um the very first um lecture I went to May 2nd 1992 when you talked about actualizing your sexual potential and I loved how you opened that session because you you said you asked the question how good can sex get now this was 30 years ago right so I was still learning how good sex could get, <laughs> but you brought out some very important points like old standards, what sex is supposed to be, not what it can be. Um, and then you went on to talk about learned optimism and those sorts of things, but actualizing your sexual potential, well, you developed quite a lot from there, but, but do you want to talk about that a little bit, your potential? Um. Well, uh, we all have our basic human potential, which means that what we exercise the most is what we develop. Mm -hmm. So if you worry the most, then what you are actualizing there is your, your ability to worry. Um, the brain really develops through experience and so what you're 
continual daily kind of experience is, is what you create more what the brain scientists call real estate in the brain. The more you practice something, the more brain tissue is devoted and neurons are devoted to what it is that you practice. So what's important is to practice being optimistic and to be hopeful about um, what we want, to be able to get it, to believe that we can have what it is that we want, rather than to believe that we'll never get it. So uh, our human potential allows us to develop ourselves and um, what we practice is what we have. So what shall we be practicing? Well, we want to practice being present in the moment, because if you are present in the moment, then you are equipped to be responsive to whatever the moment has to offer. So when we're with our partner, what we want to practice with our partner is being present with our partner. Looking into his or her eyes is a key aspect of presence with a person, another person. Because when you're looking into their eyes, you're really reaching into their soul without yeah. a doubt. And you're reaching not only into their spiritual soul, but you're reaching into their body, into their personhood. And when I talked about um, how to read minds, sex mm -hmm. and the science of mind reading, yes, that's yeah. really what I was talking about that when you are looking into your partner's eyes, when you are smiling at your partner, when, you're, when you smile at your partner, the tendency is for your partner to smile back at you, which is a really nice feedback loop of smiles and presence. And, and when you do that, you are actually reading each other's body because you're reading where each of you is, each of you is reading where the other is and influencing where the other is. So if you are present with them and if your partner is not looking at you, your partner is not present with you, you can say, honey, look at me, look at me, mm -hmm. my eyes, come back, come back to me, sweetheart. And notice, I'm not saying, hey, where the hell are you? Why aren't you looking at me? Yes, yes. <laughs> I'm, I'm, in, I'm inviting rather than chastising. And that's what you want to. You want to be inviting your partner. You want to be sweet with your partner. You want to be thoughtful with your partner. You want to smile at your partner as a way of saying you're safe with me. I'm here to love you. I'm here to enjoy you. I'm here to play with you. I'm here to have pleasure with you. Absolutely. I just, it's so inviting just the way you're saying it. You know, you use your voice very well, but I think that's such an important part. You're inviting, not chastising. 
and uh, and not complaining. The worst that complaining. The yes. worst you can do is complain to your partner. If you don't like what's happening, ask for something different. Ask yeah. for what you want, but don't complain because we all hate to hear complaints. It just is, it's, an, it's annoying and it doesn't make you feel, um, uh, doesn't make you feel um, open to giving. It makes you feel defensive, like you, like you want to hold back. It doesn't make you feel generous at all. So no. you want to evoke generosity. What you put out is what you get back. We need to remember that. If you put out a nasty tone of voice, what's the matter with you? Your mm -hmm. partner is likely to say, me, what's the matter with you? Mm -hmm. And that goes nowhere. Um, so what you want to be able to do is, is have a really friendly tone of voice, friendly look on your face, and recognize that a lot of triggers, the way we trigger one another, what these triggers are that make us feel um, angry or resentful or even sad, are triggers of past events, triggers of um, something that happened before what's happening right now. That's what a trigger is. It's triggering something from the past, old business. And you want to get present with your partner, particularly sexually. If you're not in the present, um, you're, not, you're not getting any presents. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a nice way to put it, Stella. That's right. I, and so many, in my experience, and uh, is that so many women, in particular women, um, multitask during sex because there's a part of them that doesn't really want to be there. And um, I understand that the woman has a bigger corpus callosum, the connecting tissue between the right and left hemisphere. That's exactly right. And so if she's having sex, she has to be able to hear the baby cry too. The problem is many women don't have babies anymore. They're full grown adults and they're still multitasking. They're not really present for sex, but that- uh, Yeah, but it's not just yeah. women. I mean, men too. No, it isn't. Um, That's right, men too, I know. But can also be um, um, multitasking in a way um, if they're not fully present, uh, they can be thinking about their you know, um, appointments or business or, yeah. And men talk, think about their children also. So we can't just blame no. women for that. <laughs> no, no. I just, in my experience, it's more women than men. Uh, but so we're talking, when you talk about triggers, it's all because of past events. And that's where attachment theory comes in and you've talked a lot about attack you talk a lot about attachment theory and um many uh many couples fights are over emotional disconnection um because underneath the partners want to know are you there for me do you need me do you rely on me and this is all about emotional distance and so with attachment theory 
um, it goes beyond the mother and the child. And um, let's talk a little bit about the attachment theory, secure. Yeah. Anxious um, and avoidant because yeah, it so, does play in so much. Right. So uh, it's called attachment theory, but there's a tremendous amount of support yes. for attachment theory. It's like the theory of gravity. Yeah. <laughs> gravity theory is theory, but um, but we all know that um, if we drop a ball, uh, it's going to it's going to go way down. Uh, it's not going to go up. <laughs> Yeah. So, um, so attachment theory is about, um, and this there's a lot of support for this that how the mother infant relationship begins often lays the foundation for the rest of the development of the brain. That um, babies are born with just the right brain functional. The left brain is the brain for language and logic. And that doesn't really come online until about the second year of life. So in the first year of life, this is a critical period of life. The relationship between the infant and the mother is critical. And if the mother is happy, if she loves the father of the, the baby, if, she, if the baby is wanted, um, if, um, if she is comfortable in herself and is present for this baby, she's looking into the baby's eyes. I'll use the pronoun he for the baby just to distinguish between yes. the baby and the mother. So she's looking into his eyes and she um, likes what she sees. She sees her offspring and the offspring of the man that she's with. And she loves this baby. She loved this baby when this baby was growing in her womb and she loves this baby now. And she looks into the baby's eyes. As I'm saying this, I've got my, my arm is up and I'm looking into an imaginary baby's yes, eyes. Yes, yes. And I'm smiling at this baby and I'm, and I'm talking to this baby in mother language, which tends to be more high pitched. Hi, sweetheart. Uh -huh. Aren't you pretty? You're so sweet. <laughs> You're so sweet. And and the baby is really has been searching at, at about eight weeks of age. The baby really starts to search the mother's face. And the mother's smile and loving eyes are begin to be replicated on the face of the baby. The baby's face automatically begins to mimic the face of the mother. And as the baby's face is automatically mimicking the face of the mother, the baby's nerve endings in the face are programming that are, well, the, the nerve endings in the face are attached to the organs of the body, uh, the autonomic nervous system. And 
begins to program that baby emotionally for being wanted. That's a yeah. secure attachment. That's a secure attachment. I'm wanted, I'm loved, I'm safe, I'm secure. Now, safe. if the mother is not comfortable, if she's not happy, if she's looking into the eyes of the baby and she sees the baby looks like the father, which many newborns do, or many ba babies are born looking more like the father than the mother. Mm -hmm. then um, she may be anxious uh, if she's not happy with the father of the baby. She may be anxious. Uh, she may be uh, angry. There are all sorts of ways in which the mother may in the moment be looking at the baby that might even make the baby feel uncomfortable and start to cry if the baby sees... Um, narrowed eyes and um, a frowning face, um, the baby is likely to get uncomfortable. If the mother talks to the baby in harsh tones, the baby is going to get uncomfortable. Um, if the mother is intrusive, anxious, uh, it's very likely that, that that anxious mother is going to instill anxiety in the baby as well, because the baby is essentially downloading the mother's brain and nervous system as the baby is looking into the mother's eyes. So what and, does this mean? And that's why we talk about um, uh, that we're, we are wired to connect and being on the same wavelength, wave, being on the same wavelength. And when you did that, that uh, training in 2006, just before that, a Newsweek article had come out, how to read a face. And you expanded on that uh, and how this being on the same wavelength and, and the, the baby being so, so attuned then to the mother for negative or positive. And the baby's reading the faces and reading the body language and oh boy, I just wonder. Yeah, and, and let's yeah. let's. I want to just um, um, yes, refine that because when I, when you say reading, uh, it's not intellectual. It's yeah. not an intellectual process. No, that's right. It's it is a strictly body to body kind of um, uh, projection. It's like instant messaging. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. it's body-to-body -body transference, transference of the mother's brain and nervous system to the baby. It's a transference and it's called intergenerational transmission. And it's often, uh, there's an intergenerational transmission of trauma. So if the mother has been traumatized it is very likely that the baby will be reading the mother's face and the mother's trauma, the way in which the mother interacts with the baby will affect the baby's ability uh, to interact uh, with other people. So uh, we're either secure attached or insecure 
And if we're insecure, we're either insecure avoidant, which means that, that we're not comfortable with interaction, uh, or we're insecure um, anxious. And insecure anxious people sexually often use sex to reassure themselves that their um, relationship with this person is secure. Um, so they're not just really having sex for the pleasure of it or the play opportunities, but they're using sex, whether they realize it or not, in some, some cases, um, to, to reassure themselves that their relationship is safe. On the other hand, if um, children grow up with an avoidant mother, they're very likely to also be avoidant. Or uh, if they have an anxious, anxious parents, um, they also are likely to seek space in a relationship. And that affects their sexuality as well because avoidant people are more likely to have one night stands than insecure, anxious people. Insecure, anxious people are more likely to have sex to safeguard a relationship. Uh, this is fascinating. And, and you said uh, too that uh, if you have two anxious people, two anxiously attached people, that they are continually in battle. I, and, you know, I've had clients like this and, and, and it's, it makes for a very poor sex life because they're so angry with each other. And then if they do have sex, as you said, it's, it's often about reassurance. Um, it may be about attention release. It might be about just getting a hug because we all know that touch is the, the best way to calm ourselves down, mm -hmm. uh, to receive touch. Um, you, so you've got the two anxious who are continually in battle. And then sometimes you, if you have two avoidance in a relationship, there's too much distance. And that's mm -hmm. why you say an avoidant is more likely to have a one night stand. He doesn't have to make a commitment, um, right. <laughs> but he can and, get it. Yeah. And um, two anxious <laughs> people um, are uh, uh, not just likely to be in battle, but to be lacking in trust of one yes. another. And so then oh. the woman can't feel really safe with him. And it's so important for the woman to feel safe, even most especially for her to have an orgasm. The amygdala has to take a nap her fears, her, she needs to be truly present and let go. And she can't do that unless she feels safe. In the well, it's, it's true for men too. Men, uh, yeah. if a man doesn't feel safe in a relationship, uh, it's going to affect his uh, ability to be present and mm -hmm. to um, really desire the woman. That yeah. might affect uh, his ability to um, enjoy sex or to uh, even have an erection. I was thinking that even have an erection because. Mm -hmm. um, so the beginnings of a child's life are so, so important. I and mean, we've talked about this before, but, and you say attachment theory is not anymore just a theory. There's been so much research over the years since uh, 
doc, the psychiatrist in England first came up with the idea. Bowen. Dr. Yes. Um, yeah, Dr. Bowlby. I'm sorry, Dr. Bowlby. Yes. Right. Yes. And, uh, and, and so there's been lots and lots of research. And the essence of it, as I understand it, is that what we want as a child and what we want as an adult, too, is somebody who is available to us and responsive. So if the baby cries out and the mother is not available, um, then the baby's going to be so much more upset. And, and you develop these different kinds of attachments. Yeah. So let's get back to adults. Yes, and, let's get back um, to adults. Um, so the important thing, the most important thing about sexuality now is that, um, and I wrote about this way back in my first book, is that we have to not think in terms of intercourse as being the main event because there's so much to enjoy sexually prior to intercourse and orgasm in fact if you have intercourse and orgasm in the very beginning of of getting together physically then you're going to miss out on so much possible pleasure that can not just give you a wonderful feeling in your body, but that can be really very bonding in a relationship that you give each other pleasure and that you're playful with one another. Yes. So um, what's important here is that a lot of people have very limited resources of pleasure they limit themselves. So some people limit themselves to food. So their greatest pleasure is eating. Mm -hmm. And, and nothing really compares to eating. So they eat, they overeat. Um, some people uh, have great pleasure by taking risks by driving fast cars, um, or putting themselves in great danger. Yeah. Um, and, um, of course, they like the uh, they like the adrenaline high. Right, exactly, mm -hmm. exactly. But we can get adrenaline highs um, and endorphins and dopamine through sex, through yeah. through kissing, through holding, through um, really looking at all the different ways that we can be sensual and sensuous with our partners. So um, uh, we have five ordinary senses, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, and touching. And then we have more senses. We have interoceptive uh, sense of what's going on in our gut, in our heart, um, in our, um, of course, uh, genitally is an interoceptive sense as well, although it's not often counted as one. Mm, um, interesting. But sexuality is a sense. And, and I think of it as a sense in my book, Body to Body Intimacy, I talked about the sexual sense uh, mm -hmm. because it's, it's more than just um, located in the uh, genitals. 
it's in the genitals, but in the same way that the nose um, picks up scent um, or that the mouth picks up taste. Um, but uh, it's, uh, it also utilizes all the other senses in sex. So in sex, we can enjoy looking at our partner. We can enjoy hearing our partner's voice, the sound of our partner's breath. We can taste our partner's kisses. We can, and this is the scent, this, uh, the sense of scent is really a key scent, uh, key sense in sex because when we smell our partner, our clean partner, mm -hmm. and preferably without any kind of false perfumes on, just the mm -hmm. scent of our partner's body, clean body, we are drawing in the essence of that person through pheromones. And pheromones are hormones that are released from the body of one person that are that's created in the body of one person, but released into the air in proximity to someone close to us and affects the behavior of the person that we're close to. So it's hormones that are manufactured in one body, but affect the behavior of another in another body, which is fascinating. It is fascinating. And, and that is more recent research? No, no, no. This is, no. The, this is, um, I mean, just the pheromone part. Um, no, the, the pheromone, we've known about pheromones for a long time. We've known about them in, in, uh, other animals. Yes. But, uh, yes. Um, and in butterflies and in moths. I mean, Interesting. Yeah. The pheromones are really a key way in which uh, organisms connect to one another. Birds of a feather flock together because of pheromones. <laughs> uh huh. Yes. But in terms of, I, I, I'm aware of that, but in terms of the hormones released to those close up, that it helps with the attunement that you also talk about. Yeah, it helps with attunement. And yes, it's part of what turns us on. If we breathe in the pheromones of, the, of our partner, when we're in close proximity, it's yeah. affecting our behavior and it can affect our sexuality. It can begin the process of turning us on in the same way that um, <clears throat> having a meal presented to us. And if we just dig in right away, we're missing out on the possibility of smelling that. If we smell it, smell and, and taste are very close, um, closely associated if we smell it, we can begin to, to salivate, which begins the process of digestion in the mouth, even before it gets down into the stomach. That's fascinating, Stella. That's just fascinating. And it's the same with pheromones. If we smell our partner and bring in his or her pheromones, we begin to get aroused so smell is really an important part of sexuality smelling your partner breathing deeply next to him or her 
breathing deeply. Yes. Uh, Breathing deeply, breathing the smell. And, and I I think it makes a lot of sense when you say don't have perfumes on the, the actual smell needs to, of the person needs to be evoked. And uh, and uh, especially this, this musk perfume. I mean, if, if you're looking to attract a, um, a musk ox, (laughs) <laughs> um, and you can wear a musk perfume, but otherwise it's not going to help you with a human partner. Yeah, right. But, and also the smell part of our brain, as I understand, it's kind of at the base of the base of the skull and, and it's the one of the most primitive parts of our brain. That's why you can remember a smell you might've smelled in your youth and, and all of a sudden it comes back because it, 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 yes. has, it, it yes. has made an impression. It Yes, it will evoke a evoke. whole t- the whole experience of of another time. If um, if your mother wore a particular perfume when you were a child, as my mother did, she wore Fabergé. And uh, my and- mother wore uh, my. My mother, uh, well, go ahead with your story and I'll... I'll, Well, uh, and if you pass by somebody wearing that, it will immediately evoke that time in your life. And you'll remember, you know, think of your mother, you'll think of the house you lived in at the time. That's Uh, right. You'll you'll think of some of the um, issues that you were dealing with in the time. So uh, it brings a whole thing, a whole uh, event, a whole aura back to you. So scent is is really important, but seeing, looking into your partner's eyes, hearing, listening to your partner's breathing. If you listen to your partner's breathing, you can begin to synchronize your, your breathing with your partner. Now, the latest thing that I've been into is um, in neurobiology is called interpersonal synchrony. And when we are in close proximity with another person, we begin to match. This is automatic. We don't think about this. We begin to match rhythms with our partner. And we begin to match um, rhythms in the brain, the heart, hearts become entrained. We begin to match heart rhythms. Uh, we begin to mimic each other's voice, vocal tones. Um, we begin to um, match movements. So uh, we tend to start walking in step if we're walking with somebody. And, and uh, we begin to actually bring our, our steps in in sync and we trust people that we can be synchronous with so the more likely we have interpersonal synchrony with another person that are that we begin to match our breaths we begin to match our gaits uh, we begin to match our facial expression the more we have in that connection with another person, the safer we feel with the other person, and the more likely we are to bond with the other person. So this is critical sexually. And not only that, but when we have interpersonal synchrony with another person, we begin to match sexually uh, sexual feelings. 
So we're more likely to both feel sexual excitement together, or on the other hand, sexual ennui, sexual boredom. With boredom. So what you're talking about has also is also been related to mirror neurons in our brains. Uh, yes, to some extent, but um, but we're uh, there's some. Um, uh, there's some research that um, uh, challenges that notion that it's related to the mirror neurons. Definitely, oh. yeah. Um, mm. It's very likely that what's taking place between the infant and the mother may be related to mirror neurons. Mm -hmm. But, um, and in casual uh, activity, that may be more, you know, when we're with people that... Uh, um, that we're not necessarily bonded with, mm -hmm. um, but um, there's there's been some controversy around the research in mirror neurons. Interesting. So you you also talk about uh, bodies in tacit communication, and th this has been one of your messages for a long time. And I think it's essential. If you're in your head, you're not in your body, and you might want to quote pearls because. He's got a he's he's got a great observation in that area. Yes, um, Fritz Perl said, Fritz "Lose Perl. your mind and come to your senses." Yeah, I love so that. We, we need to be in touch with seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, and touching what we feel in the other person's body. You can feel a stiffness in their body. You can feel um, a resistance in the body. Uh, and that tends to, of course, communicate resistance in the other person because uh, that's a that's a um, transmission uh, to the other person. What we what we put out is what we get back, uh, and that's really important to remember. I so, think it is too. Yes. Yeah. Um, so uh, the other thing that's really important in sex is breath. <sighs> taking yeah. deep breaths and and feeling your body feeling what's going on in your head and your face feeling what's going on in your chest and in, in your belly feeling what's going on if you're relaxed um, uh, and breathing easily taking a nice deep inhale bringing in the scent of your partner and exhaling. And incidentally, um, pheromones are transmitted irrespective of gender. So if you're a female with a female partner, you're breathing in each other's pheromones just as oh. much as people in opposite sex relationships uh, do. So... Oh. So that's really uh, important to that. That's know. very important, uh, and mm -hmm. and also the breathing, because I've adopted your some of your breathing exercises for my clients, and um, so it it also helps with self regulation, the deep breathing and the relaxation. Uh, and Absolutely. Talk, yeah. So talk a little bit about self regulation, the anatomic uh, balance, the sympathetic versus the parasympathetic and and all of that 
this is great stuff. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) And you're great, Stella. My goodness, what a what a mentor, what a great friend. I so appreciate you. So you, uh, your so self-regulation. self-regulation yes. Okay, so let's get back to triggering. When okay. we get triggered, now um, we can all be triggered. I certainly get triggered. My husband gets triggered. Um, we get triggered. We trigger each other. A crossword or a cross look will trigger us. It doesn't have to be language. It can be just in the way our partner looks at us. Um, And so we become triggered. That means that we become um, more intense. Energy has has built up, um, protective energy. So this brings me to some um, more... um, Interesting research, um, particularly from uh, the polyvagal theory, that when um, when we're triggered, well, we have two systems that our nervous system uh, becomes um, focused through, and that is the um, uh, social and um, uh, connective kind of um, safe, secure, and social system versus the uh, system that is um, defensive and, and closed off. And the defensive system stops the social engagement system that we can't be socially, social engagement is just you and another person. So it doesn't mean, you know, big crowd. It just means you and another person that if you are um, threatened in any way, you will become defensive and that will close you off from being responsive to another person in a positive way. So you're, Uh, you're in danger. So we want to be affiliative. We want to be connecting with our partner and or with our friends uh, or our relatives or our children. And if we're in a defensive mode, we're not in an engaging mode. We're into self-protection rather than being open to engagement with another person. So that's really important that we self-regulate. And that means that if our partner um, gives us a, a dirty look, uh, what, what the Hawaiians call stink eye. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> stink eye. <laughs> <laughs> um, then uh, they may not even realize it. And it may have nothing to do with us. It may have to do with where that guy is thinking or what that person is thinking in the moment. But we respond defensively to that. Now, what we want to be able to do is downregulate that activation. If we are energized in a negative way, it prevents us from being energized in a positive way. Because being energized in a negative way 
closes us down. It closes our muscles become tense, our body becomes tense, and blood flow um, becomes constricted. And that will affect our sexuality, of course, because sexuality completely depends on blood flow um, in order to get turgidity into our genital region, our pelvic, not just our genitals, but our entire pelvic region. And then we can't get aroused. And if we can't get aroused, ain't nothing going to happen. Yeah. And also you're not feeling so nice if your partner's, you don't feel so close if your partner's uh, being so negative and defensive and or or it doesn't have to he or she doesn't have to be negative and defensive he he or she can just be um not focused um can have um you know uh, be into his or her own thoughts yeah uh, and maybe uh defensive themselves for some reason so, um, yeah, so we want to be able to self-regulate. We want to be able to down-regulate our anxiety, down-regulate our anger. And that requires breathing deeply. And sometimes it requires um, being generous with our partner. Mm-hmm rather than being um, resentful. Um, our partner is hurt about something and says that you've done something that has been painful to him or her, then you want to be able to apologize or you want to be able to uh, be generous with them because you want your partner to be happy. Um, so Stella, this is so important and all of, because it is a solution for a lot of people to improve their self-regulation. Um, I want to be able to talk about something that has been very central to a, a, a lot of your philosophies for years, and that is the principle of relaxed excitement. And yes. you say it's the key to success in everything. Can you, before we wind up this show, I'd love for you to talk about this. It's so important yes. to us. Yes. Well, if you, think about, if you think about excitement, we can be excited and angry. Uh, we can be excited and be afraid. But what we want is positive excitement. Now, um, angry excitement or fear excitement closes us down. Everything closes. So we start to breathe less. And in short bursts, we um, are, of course, we're constricting blood flow. Um, and so nothing's going to happen that's going to be any good in that sense. So what we want to be able to do is open up and the difference between pleasure and pain is really the difference between breathing and being open in the body is pleasure and moving toward what it is that is turning you on to we turn on that means everything is opening yeah uh, 
And um, when we're in anger or uh, even guilt or shame, all of that is constricting. So we want to be able to relax into our body. And so if we have a, a sense of fear, of course, you want to assess the situation to see if, if I am indeed in danger here. Because anxiety is all about whether or not we're in danger. Anxiety is fear. And, and fear is about danger. Uh, anxiety is typically about danger that is not necessarily present in the moment, but uh, danger that you imagine. Uh, danger about the, what you imagine about the future. So um, anxiety is about being in the future, what's going to happen to me, rather than being present and being expectant about good things happening. So uh, relaxed excitement depends upon being present. Deep mm -hmm. breaths. <sighs> Deep sighs, releasing, letting go. Um, once you've assessed that you are not in any danger, that you are in fact safe in this moment, that you're with somebody who is safe, but if you assess in that moment that who you are with is not safe, for whatever reason, you don't need a reason. If you, if you cannot shake the feeling that you are not safe with this person, then ipso facto, you are not safe. Yeah. <laughs> you are not safe. Trust, trust your feelings. But if in fact you are safe, Take some deep breaths and get into your body and allow your body to assess what is taking place between you and this other person. What is in reality taking place. And if what in reality is taking place is that you're looking into the face of someone whose eyes are soft, who has a smile on his or her face, whose body is relaxed, who seems to be with you, who is friendly, whose vocal tones are friendly. It's called prosody, scientifically, prosody. 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 P-R-O-S-O-D-Y, prosody. Okay, learned Tone a new voice. word. Good, good. Tone good. of voice, very, very important in child rearing and very important in making a relationship work. If yeah. you have nasty, nasty tone of voice, what? What do you want? Mm -hmm. What's the matter with you? Yeah. Uh, I'm not ready right now. Leave me alone. Um, you, that prosody will um, probably, uh, besides eye contact, lack of eye contact, prosody is essential in making a good relationship. Being sweet. Hi, honey, how you doing? <laughs> so nice to see you. In the same way, when talking with a baby, you want to talk with your sweetheart. There's a reason we call each other baby. 
That's right. That's right. And uh, maybe maybe this is a oh we're gonna we won't have enough time to talk about earned secure. Uh, earned secure is all about being in a relationship that is loving. And if you're you come from a, a non-loving childhood like I did, and you end up in a loving relationship with a partner, then you can become an earned secure. You can become more secure in your life than you were before you met your partner. And and I I was so fortunate because I did have a loving, secure family. Uh, and I had a mother who just adored me and my sister and later my brother just, so I, I, I was very, very fortunate and to have that kind of secure attachment. And I think it's actually helped me help my clients more, but, but you, you have lived this where you've had to overcome your anxious avoidant attachment. And I, I know you had a lot of things that were really pretty awful in your childhood and um but you overcame it and you learned about this and you learned about what the brain and the body can do mm -hmm. uh and you have a successful marriage of how many years now over 30 yeah we just celebrated our 37th wedding anniversary oh wow and i love alan he's so great and my husband loves him too and both of you 37 years 37 years married, but we lived married. together for six years before we married. So, oh, that's so we lived together 43 years. Ah, isn't that amazing? It is amazing. And, and kudos to you and to Alan. <laughs> so, you know, because, and you tell a lot of your personal story in your now classic book, The Pleasure Zone. And yeah. it is fascinating. And I have repeated that story to a number of my clients because it's inspirational, Stella. And you're inspirational. And I'm I'm so well, I hope I can entice you to come back because there's so much more to talk about. And Dr. Stella Resnick, and I'm gonna put her website, of course, in the show notes, drstellaresnick.com. No, dr. No, dr. Stella Resnick at Gmail. Oh yeah, but I was talking about your website. Oh yeah, okay. Yeah, and your website because um, anyway, you you know you you have through your three books. Um, I'm writing a fourth now, and that'll be what? Tell us. I met. That's going to be my memoir. Yes, I. And but it's going to weave in um, how. Uh, all that I've learned in psychology and as a gestalt therapist, uh, which is now being corroborated by the neurobiology, incidentally, um, all that I've learned um, and all my therapy uh, has uh, helped me and um, become who I am today. And I'll weave that into my memoir as well. Of course, that's, that's brilliant. And you have created a compelling case for the need to integrate mind and body, past and present, the individual and relational in, in sex and couples therapies. You've done, you've integrated it all so beautifully. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Stella, for being on the show today. And uh, I look forward to seeing you, I hope, soon before the summer ends. You're in Los Angeles, I'm in Seattle, but we'll see each other again. I hope so. I can't wait. 
Thank you, Stella. Thank you Thanks so much for, for this. Thanks for having me. Enlightened hour. Thank you. Bye bye, everybody.